Hear now the word of the Lord from Matthew chapter 17, verses 9 through 13. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, Then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? He answered, Elijah does come and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come and they did not recognize him but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Well, it was eight years ago this week, November 22nd, 2015, when I was uh, installed as pastor here at Harvest, right in this room, again, about eight years ago on November 22nd. Uh, November 22nd this year was actually the day that we adopted Kenan, so now two really good memories in, in my um, life from there. Um, I remember, though, that day eight years ago, um, I remember a day of just great joy and gratitude. Now, obviously, I was excited for a new chapter in life. I was excited about a new uh, opportunity and call to ministry. Uh, but it really went much deeper than that. And you see, I had uh, desired to enter full-time pastoral ministry for about 12 years before that. I was in college. Someone mentioned, hey, you should think about being a pastor. And I had always thought that idea was ridiculous, but somehow it really stuck then. And I really felt an internal desire to move toward pastoral ministry. So finished college, went to seminary, studied at seminary, was thinking about being a pastor. Um, toward the last year of seminary, started inquiring different places, trying to find a call to pastoral ministry. Couldn't find it, moved back to Lincoln, Nebraska, intended to just work there for a couple of months until I'd find something. I ended up being there six years. Uh, before entering into a full-time call, I served as an assistant pastor bivocationally. I served as interim pastor for a couple of churches. Uh, but during that time, I, I could not find a full-time call as, as my heart was longing for. Um, it, it broke my heart every time I'd send out an application. I applied all over the country and would often hear nothing back. In our denomination, there are far more people who are trained and ordained and able to be pastors than there are actual calls to ministry. And sometimes I would hear back from them. Sometimes I'd go through part of the way through an interview and then would hear that they had gone with someone else. And so when the day that Harvest called and I came, and many of you were there that day, it was a great joy. I felt that I had arrived on a mountaintop of joy. I'd finally come to what I wanted to so much in life. However, at that moment, it wasn't that all of the anguish just suddenly went away. What I found is that it, it just changed. You see, pastoral ministry is marked and characterized by suffering. There's a tremendous amount of joy in pastoral ministry, uh, but pastoral ministry is always necessarily inextricably mingled with sorrow and suffering. I remember vividly times when I've walked with people to see them uh, take a step forward away from their sin only to then seemingly take two steps backwards and to do this again and again and again walking with people. Seeing people that I loved deeply over the years die from a number of circumstances and a bit of wisdom that I learned I've, has become painfully true that the funerals you preside over become increasingly difficult the longer you are at a church. Even this morning, if you listen to the pastoral prayer, there are two people in our congregation who've lost parents this week and another one who lost a beloved aunt. 
Death is always around, and it's not just my anguish of not getting to do the thing which I wanted to do. It's uh, now doing the thing I want to do, which is a greater number of burdens that are bound up in it and sorrows that are bound up in it. Again, there's a great amount of joy in pastoral ministry, but you cannot experience that joy apart from suffering. Now that lesson there, that principle, is the principle that we see shown in the passage that we are looking at today. It's a a principle that comes from a pattern established by the great shepherd of the sheep, the great chief pastor of his people, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Because if you remember, if you were here a couple of weeks ago, or if you just know where we are in the Gospel of Matthew, we looked at the transfiguration of Jesus, where the veil that covered Jesus' glory was momentarily dropped, and his disciples saw his glory shining on the mountaintop. But now he has to come down from the mountaintop. Again, after the disciples opened their eyes, after Moses and Elijah had left, there was just Jesus only. And now they have to go back down that mountain from that mountaintop experience. And the first thing Jesus talks to them again is about his suffering. Our big idea then is that we cannot see the glory of Jesus except through suffering. We cannot see the glory of Jesus except through suffering. This morning, this passage is going to help us to understand why suffering is so linked with Jesus' glory. We're going to see how we can't see the glory of Jesus except through not only his suffering, but also our suffering. We're going to see why and how this is the case in three sections as we look at this short passage of Scripture. First of all, resurrection from the dead. That'll be the first point, resurrection from the dead. Second, rejection by wicked men. Rejection by wicked men. And then third, remembering Jesus' forerunners. Remembering Jesus' forerunners. So first, resurrection from the dead in verses 9 through 10. Now again, I'm going to look at one of the transitional statements. Uh, We try to look at the transitional statements as we study through the Gospel of Matthew. Again, this is not Matthew just trying to write down a list of everything he can remember, when he remembers it. He's really telling a story and each story is linked to the next story where he's trying to show us something, teach us something, even by the order and the sequence in which he's telling the story. And so we read, as they were coming down from the mountain. So we have to ask, what mountain? Again, we talked about this just a moment ago. This was the mountaintop of Jesus' transfiguration where his glory was displayed for the three disciples who were there as eyewitnesses of the majesty to see him. But here they're coming down from that mountaintop experience. And symbolically, you're just seeing the descent. They were on the mountaintop seeing the glory, and now they are descending back down. And on the, on the way down, even before they get down, Jesus commanded them to do something. It's a very strong word. Jesus commanded them. He didn't just ask, politely request. This is a military command, a military order that's given. And what Jesus says is very strongly worded. Tell no one the vision. In Greek, the uh, phrase no one is pulled up to the front of the sentence. No one tell this vision. No one must know about this. Until, until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. Now the word vision, it's very important. Perhaps you're wondering, does this mean that maybe this was just a dream? 
something imaginary, something that just went on in their heads. They had a vision in their minds. No, no, the word that's used here refers to something concrete, something historic, something they saw with their eyes. And Jesus is saying, that vision, no one must know about it until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. Now, that's a clear time frame. It's a very clear idea of when they are not permitted and then when they will be permitted to tell this vision. But notice the implication here. It might just wash over us because we're familiar with the full story. But for Jesus to be raised from the dead necessarily implies that he must die. Now again, we're familiar with the whole story. We know all of that. We know about the resurrection. But the disciples don't know this. Think about having just seen Jesus transfigured in his glory and now suddenly he's going to die? How is that even possible? How can the one who is the glorious, majestic Son of God, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased, listen to him? How can God's Son die? What's well, so interesting to see the question the disciples ask as a follow-up to this. This is what's on their mind. This is what they're wondering about. How can you die, Jesus, if you are the Son of the living God? But we read in verse 10, they ask him, trying to maybe get at the question at a different angle. And we read in verse 10, the disciples asked him, then, what that word means, therefore, or so, they are reacting to, they are uh, making a logical question that flows from what Jesus had just said, them, said to them. They're going to die? Well, if that's true then, why do the scribes say that the first Elijah must come? Now, of all questions they might ask, this one might strike us as strange, but let's work through the way that they're thinking about this. In part, they're asking a question about a clear prophecy from Scripture that's recorded for us in Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 through 6. In that, uh, in that section, the Lord declares, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn. Now, I'm gonna, that word turn in the Greek translation of the Old Testament is really something more like restore. I want to mention that because it's become, become important in a moment. And he will turn or he will restore the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Now, this is the prophecy they're talking about. Why are they asking about this? Well, one possibility, and probably a likely part of what they're asking this, is remember they had just seen Elijah two weeks ago when we looked at the story of the transfiguration. We talked about all of the connections from that story to the story of Moses. You know, Moses went up the mountain, there was a cloud of glory that came down on Mount Sinai that Moses went up to to talk with the Lord. Just as Moses' face shone, so also Jesus shone. However, Moses was like the moon reflecting the glory of God, whereas Jesus was like the sun shining in the fullness of his own radiance. Well, also, Moses showed up at that time to make the connection clear. But Elijah was also there with them. And now Elijah had just appeared, but then he was gone when they looked up. So maybe they're asking, is he going to do more? Was that it? Is there more to Elijah's role in this? That's probably part of what they're asking. But part of what they're asking is revealed in verse 11, when Jesus has responded to them. We're going to come back to this first, but let me just peek ahead. Jesus affirms, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. Now, this idea of restoring all things, 
This gets to what the scribes taught about, uh, or first century Jews taught that when Elijah returned, he would restore all things. Now, again, that goes back to the Greek translation of Malachi 4, verse 6. It's, uh, it's essentially the same way. It's one way of talking about turning the hearts of fathers. Uh, but in the Greek, the idea is restoring, turning in the sense of restoring the hearts of fathers to their children. And, and really, that, phrase, that version talks about restoring all things. And so that's what the scribes taught, that Elijah would restore all things. And so the disciples are wondering, well, if this is true, if Elijah has appeared and he's going to restore all things, if all things are restored, if the heavens and the earth are made new, how could Jesus die under that circumstance? If everything is made right, how could God's only son suffer and die? Surely we're talking about something that can't happen if all things are truly restored. What the disciples are not understanding is the connection between glory and death. Now, this connection between glory and death is one that every culture struggles to understand. Every culture is blind to see this connection. Our own culture, perhaps most of all, our own culture really understands glory, if we would even use the word, only in what is so far removed from death that death is scarcely imaginable. We glorify youth culture. If you watch what's on TV, if you see what's on the magazines, if you see uh, movies, anything like that, what is held forth in front of us? It's not the wisdom of agedness. It's youth. People who, theoretically, statistically speaking, are far away from death. That's what we glorify in our culture. Perhaps because we don't want to think about our own mortality. Well, in the first century Jews, they did revere agedness. They did revere the wisdom that comes from agedness. They didn't necessarily want a teenager as their shining example of glory, but they did look at strength. When they thought about the coming restoration of all things, they wanted a conquering King David to come in. And remember, David conquered when he was young. When he gets older, we read that he was no longer able to stand in battle. And as his health and age declines, he becomes weaker and weaker as you read the transition from 2 Samuel into 1 Kings. They're wanting a, a vibrant, strong David. But even the ancient Greeks, who did valorize death in some cases, at least death in the battlefield, they would have rejected the kind of death that Jesus is talking about. Jesus wasn't actually going to ride into battle like you would read in the Iliad or the Odyssey and, and die in a way that the poets would sing about him and celebrate his sacrifice for centuries to come, Jesus was going to die as an outcast, as a condemned criminal, as a blasphemer, as one who was raised and hanged on a tree so that he was considered to be cursed by God, for indeed he was cursed by God, not for himself but for us. They would look at that and they would say, there's no glory in that. There's no purpose to that. In fact, that's a tragedy, but not even the tragedy that they would sing about in their tragic plays where there was a hero with a fatal flaw. This is just foolishness, they would say. Humanly speaking, it's impossible, whatever culture you're from, whatever values you imbibe, if you're, invaluing, if you're imbibing human values, you cannot look at the cross of Jesus and say, there is true strength, there is glory, because it's not a natural concept. It's not something that is obvious from a human perspective. This is seemingly needless suffering, and this is why the disciples can't get their heads around it. 
And you and I struggle with this as well. In our own lives, we can't see the value of suffering and death. The Bible talks about suffering, uh, the thorns and the thistles that we must encounter in our lives as being a part of the curse that God brought as judgment against the original sin of Adam and Eve. And we're still dealing with thorns and thistles of suffering in our life. And not only suffering, not only the minor bumps and bruises that we have along the way, the pricks of the thorns and the thistles, but even death itself came through that first sin. And we cannot see the value in death. Now, the Bible everywhere denies the idea that death is good. The, uh, the Bible always calls death evil. In fact, death is called the last enemy that Jesus will put under his feet. But here's the thing about the power of God. God shows again and again and again that he is not limited. He is not hindered. He is not thwarted by suffering and death. In fact, God is so powerful that what we cannot see as having any purpose, any redeeming value, he uses. He uses suffering and death to accomplish his grand purposes of something that is far more glorious because of how far it rises from suffering and death to resurrection. God is not merely good to you when he keeps you from various bumps and bruises that you might encounter along the way. God is primarily good to you in that he will raise your body from the dead. Do you trust that where God is leading you is something greater than just preserving you for a little bit longer? That's what the disciples are wrestling with here. And so this brings us to the second section, the rejection by wicked men in verses 11 through 12. Rejection by wicked men. As we've already read in verse 11, Jesus partially acknowledges that the scribes are correct. Elijah does come. Elijah will restore all things. Again, that's the same Greek word that was used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament in Malachi chapter 4. More important than the scribes being correct, what Jesus is really affirming is that the scriptures will be fulfilled. But what Jesus goes on in verse 12 to acknowledge is that the scribes, even though they are partially correct, they've misunderstood two key aspects of this prophecy. The first aspect comes in this section. We'll look at the second aspect, the misunderstanding, in the next section. But the first misunderstanding comes in verse 12. The first thing the scribes misunderstand is they do not remember that Elijah had to suffer. Uh, look at what, they, what Jesus says in verse 12. But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. The scribes did not think that when Elijah returned, he would suffer. And, and there's some reason that makes some sense. If you remember, Elijah was one of the two people in all of history who actually sidestepped suffering and death. Do you dread death? Elijah is one of the two people who did not endure death to enter into heaven. Enoch, we are told, and early on in the book of Genesis, chapter 5, Enoch walked with God, and then he was not. He lived here, and then he simply wasn't there. And then surrounded by so-and-so lived, and then so-and-so died, and he died, and he died, and he died. But Enoch walked with God, and he was not. He escaped death somehow. So also did Elijah. And Elijah entered heaven with style. We don't know how Enoch was brought into heaven. Elijah entered with style when God sent not just a red carpet from heaven, a chariot of fire from heaven to pick him up and to bring him into the heavenly places without suffering, without dying. It's understandable 
Why, if Elijah appears again, we think, all right, suffering is behind us. Death is no more. Elijah is here. But that overlooks the entirety of Elijah's life. Elijah spent most of his prophetic ministry in hiding. The first thing that Elijah does is he walks into the court of the wicked king Ahab and declares that there's going to be a drought. And then immediately, knowing that that is not going to be a popular message, he has to go into hiding. And he hides for a long time. He hides by a brook of water and ravens bring him his food until that brook of water dries up because the drought gets that bad. And then finally he appears. And Elijah's life is so threatened that when he goes to tell Obadiah that he's here, go find your master, bring King Ahab to me. Obadiah's like, you're going to disappear and I will be left on the hook. I will suffer for you. But Elijah appears, challenges Ahab to a duel on top of Mount Carmel. And when he goes up to Mount Carmel, it's a duel between Ahab's prophets of Baal. As Jim talked about, think about the power of our economy. It's what Baal represented to them. Versus the Lord. Well, the Lord vindicated himself sending fire from heaven to burn up Elijah's sacrifice, but no such fire came to the priests of Baal. And so the priests of Baal were rounded up and were destroyed. Now at that moment, Elijah then prays and rain comes again on the land. The land is restored. Agriculture is restored. The false prophets have been destroyed. Elijah has what? Restored all things, hasn't he? Elijah has restored all things. Everything is here. Everything is good. Things are smooth sailing from here on now. Until Elijah returns and the first person he hears from is Ahab's wicked wife Jezebel who says may the gods do so to me and more also if you are not as one of the priests of Baal well Elijah was crushed from that and he went into hiding again he didn't just hide he was depressed we read that he was not strong enough that he could even go on with ministry God had to feed him and bring him water again because he's just so overcome by the suffering and the persecution that he must endure at the hands of the leaders of the nation of Israel. That faithful suffering that Elijah endured was a critical part of God's plan for Elijah. And what the scribes have forgotten is that Elijah suffered the first time and therefore he must suffer this time as well. And more than that, what they have misunderstood, if they forget about the suffering of Elijah, they also forget the way that Elijah, who is a forerunner, I will send you Elijah before the great and awesome day of the Lord. If Elijah must suffer, so must the Son of Man suffer. So must the Lord incarnate Jesus Christ suffer. So also Jesus says the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. As Elijah suffered much more, the faithful suffering of the Son of Man is a critical part of God's plan for Jesus. Let me give you an illustration of the way that God uses suffering and death. Uh, My family um, enjoys uh, watching some of the cooking shows on the Food Network. Not the ones where they actually teach you step-by-step to make something, you know, the useful ones. Uh, We enjoy the useless ones where there's a competition going on, uh, where there's a time limit or where people have to uh, use a budget in some kind of made-up supermarket. 
uh, where they have to buy things and make it very quickly, or really our favorite ones, is where they're given some nasty, bizarre, disgusting ingredient. They have to use meat, potted meat, or they have to use something that's disgusting. And they have to make this the star of the dish, the featured element of the dish. Now, understand, there are people like me who don't understand why salt belongs in sweet cookies. I mean, that doesn't make sense. It's not salty, it's sweet. Why would those ingredients go together? Most of you who are probably a little bit beyond that kind of a lesson, and you understand how to mix different things. These people talk about acids, and they talk about fats, and I don't know. They're talking about a lot of things to make things good. Normal cooks can do that level. What they do is something truly remarkable. They take nastiness, and somehow they make it a star of a dish. And somehow the true test of the glory of their cooking is they make something tremendously delicious from something that is utterly repulsive. Do you understand this is what God is doing in your life? It's one thing to sort of weave your way past sort of the pitfalls and the mines that you might walk over in this life. It's another thing if God takes the nastiest, most reprehensible part of the human experience, death itself, and God makes it the star in the sense of inverting it through resurrection. The one who is dead is made alive again. Jesus, the glory that he has is he says that I was alive and now, and then I died and now I am alive forevermore. It's the star of his identity that he himself has passed through death to conquer death. Do you trust that God is working all things, including suffering and death, together for good in your life? That he's such an extraordinary chef it's the French word for master. That he creates glory from something that is disgusting. If you did, how would your relationship to him change? If you believe that God was doing something in your life like this, how would you pray differently? You'd probably pray less for God to remove suffering and more for God to bring glory through your suffering to himself and also as a part of glorifying you. How would you greet new challenges? Probably with less dread. Oh, I'm just worried for when the next shoe drops and with more expectation. What's God up to now? I know it's something. I know it's extraordinary. What's he up to now? How would you view persecution? Less as something to be avoided at all costs and more as God's canvas on which he will paint something incredibly breathtaking. How would you look at God's work in your life? Well, in the third section, we come to remembering Jesus' forerunners in verse 13. We read, Then the disciples understood that he, Jesus, was speaking to them of John the Baptist. This leads us to the second misunderstanding. If the first misunderstanding was to forget that Elijah himself had suffered, the first Elijah, the second misunderstanding is to misunderstand that the fulfillment of Malachi 4 had a partial literal fulfillment in the reappearance of Elijah on the Mount of Transfiguration. That really did happen, but it had a greater, more figurative fulfillment in one who resembles Elijah in John the Baptist. John the Baptist, like Elijah, he was wearing leather. He ate locusts in the wilderness. He resembled Elijah in a lot of ways. 
And it's this second Elijah about whom Jesus was speaking. Now, Jesus actually already said this to us in Matthew chapter 11, verse 14. When John the Baptist had sent word to him by his messengers, by his disciples, asking Jesus, are you the one who is to come or should we expect another? Jesus then turned to the crowds and said, if you are willing to accept it, he, John the Baptist, is Elijah who is to come. Now again, Elijah has come at the Mount of Transfiguration, but that's only a partial fulfillment of what God intended by that prophecy. Again, the greater fulfillment is in John the Baptist. And what did they do to John the Baptist? They persecuted him. They jailed him. They despised him. They murdered him without cause. But we must remember, who is John the Baptist? He is the forerunner of Jesus. And I will send before you Elijah before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. He's a forerunner for Jesus. He goes in advance where Jesus goes later. Elijah was a forerunner for Ahab. Do you remember that? After the great victory on Mount Carmel, while it's starting to rain everywhere, Elijah is running before the chariot of Ahab. What, what was that to do? Well, this was the one who went before the king. Uh, the one who would run before the king, the one who was a great honor. It was the one who would make sure that there was any problems. They would try to deal with them, but it was an honorable place. It's, it's sort of think about the advance, um, uh, the, the, the police on motorcycles who go before the, the presidential limo who comes behind. The forerunners are making sure there's no security problems. But again, those forerunners, they would then divert the president. But where John the Baptist was a forerunner, moving toward death, the great king of kings did not divert his path. He saw where John went. And so also must the Son of Man suffer many things at the hands of the people. What this short passage is doing is it's sealing the connection between Jesus' glory and Jesus' suffering. It's, it's like what we saw at the end of the last chapter in chapter 16. At the end of chapter 16, when Jesus had gone the furthest northern point in Caesarea Philippi, that's the point at which Peter gives the great confession. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God, in Matthew 16, verse 16. And Jesus says, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. But then immediately... From that time on, the next thing that Jesus does is to talk to his disciples that he must suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And that same Peter comes and says something else. Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. And that's when Jesus has to rebuke Peter, saying, get behind me, Satan. The same thing that he had said to Satan, except it's uh, be gone behind me, Satan, because he's saying, you are a rock, Peter, but you are a stumbling block to me, blocking my way to the cross. You are not setting your mind on the things of God, but the things of man, because Peter couldn't understand the connection between the suffering of Jesus and the glory of Jesus as the Christ and the Son of the living God. Well, Peter with James and John are with Jesus on this mountain when they see him transfigured and they think this is glory, and Peter says, Lord, it's good that we're with you. But on the way down, the disciples, the disciples are asking, how can you die? How can you need to rise from the dead if Elijah really is going to come and restore all things? 
And Jesus is saying, just as you had to learn it the first time around, I'm going to teach you this lesson again. My glory is bound up in my suffering. You cannot see my glory, Jesus says, except in through my suffering. Our application is this. Stand firm by embracing Christ and Him crucified by faith. Jesus has taught this lesson now twice in a row. He wants us to understand that glory can only be tasted when it is mingled with suffering. But he tells us this to help us to stand firm by faith as we embrace Christ and Him crucified. See, by faith, what we are called to do in the Bible is to turn from all worldly glory, from all worldly power, to embrace Christ crucified, Someone who outwardly, by all human accounting, by all human estimation, has no glory. No culture looks at Jesus Christ crucified and says, that's glory. It's just not a natural way to look at the crucifixion of Jesus. But by faith, we are called to take all that the world says is glorious and turn from it. And look to Jesus Christ crucified and recognize that as difficult, as painful, as much suffering as that is, God, the master chef, is bringing glory out of this through the resurrection of Jesus. The people, including us, who would misunderstand the transfiguration if it just stood on its own, Jesus wants us to understand and to see through the lens of his suffering and crucifixion. Because there will be glory in and through Jesus, but there's no glory, no salvation apart from Christ and him crucified. Before we talk about our suffering, we've got to ask, are we looking through suffering of Jesus through the lens of what God has done in and through Christ and Him crucified? But then this does give us a tool, a lens, through which we can understand our suffering better. Your suffering, the death that surrounds you, do you understand that this is God's secret ingredient for your glory? It's the star of the dish, not because God will leave it as it is, because God will leave it to move evermore toward corruption, but because God raises the dead. It's not that God inflicts suffering. It's not that he approves of suffering. God doesn't have an affinity for death as though he likes it. Again, this is the last enemy that Jesus Christ will trample underneath his feet. Rather, the case is that God uses what exists only because of sin and he transforms that into glory. Again, it's one thing to go from good to great. It is another thing to go from death to resurrection. Jesus Christ came to bring us who are dead in our sins and trespasses to walk in the resurrection of the newness of life. But this looks beyond this life, beyond the grave that all of us must pass through to the final resurrection. It's not only a one day, someday thing. Do you understand that this is what God is doing in us today? This point is particularly made clearly by the Apostle Paul in Philippians 3 through Philippians 4. In Philippians 3 verse 10, Paul writes this. Paul prays, he prays that, that he may know him, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, Christ's resurrection, and may share his sufferings becoming like him in death. Paul says, the suffering I'm suffering is not just what's happening to me. My sufferings actually lead me to share in Christ's sufferings so that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. 
Well, then toward the end of that chapter, Philippians 3, verses 20 through 21, Paul reorients us. Don't look at death the way the world looks at it. Because our citizenship is in heaven, Paul writes. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. Do you notice the logic here? We become like Jesus by sharing in His sufferings, especially in death, so that we may become like Jesus by being raised up from the lowly dead bodies that we have to become like His glorious body. We cannot see the glory of Jesus except through suffering. First, His suffering, but then also as we understand and make sense of our suffering. So what does Paul do with this? Well, in the very next verse, the very next verse is a chapter break, and so we come to Philippians 4, verse 1, and Paul says, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Why do we need this message? What practical application does this have? It tells us that we can stand firm. Again, I know where some of you are today. You're walking through the shadow of death. You're in the shadow of death. You're suffering. Maybe it's not even something with what I know. Please share, again, as a pastor. I'd love to share that burden with you. There's joy in pastoral ministry. It's always mingled with suffering. But understand that as we are there, God has not abandoned us. Jesus had to pray, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that we would not be forsaken by God. Because God now takes our sufferings and he unites us with Christ in his sufferings. So that just as we've been crucified with Christ, we will be raised with him on the last day. Brothers and sisters, we grieve, but not like those who have no hope. And we ourselves are wasting away in our outer bodies, even while our inner bodies are being renewed day by day. The resurrection which has started in our inner man, our inner nature, even though our outer bodies must pass through the grave unless Jesus Christ returns first, that resurrection, Jesus Christ, will not only restore us spiritually in our souls, but he will restore even our lowly, corrupted bodies, which even in the grave remain united to Jesus Christ. If he has been raised, so also will we with him because Jesus Christ has the power over sin and death forever. Stand firm, therefore, my beloved, my joy and my crown. Stand firm thus in the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so weak. We are so frail. We live in this veil of death, surrounded by the shadow of death all the time, in the valley of death. And yet you promise us that we are not alone, that Jesus Christ has already passed through death and that he has been raised to life. And one day he will raise us to body and soul, uniting us in glorified bodies to be like him forever. We pray that that day would come quickly. And in the meantime, we pray that you would give us resurrection strength in our inner man to be renewed day by day, to stand firm in the Lord, even as we pass through the sufferings, the sufferings in which we have a share in Christ Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.